millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 108. Known unknowns. Last time we covered the improbable rise of Basil the Macedonian from hunky stable boy to emperor of the Romans. Whether he charmed or connived his way up the ladder, surely he never dreamt of being the Vasilevs. We don't know if Michael meant him to be an active partner on the throne or if he was just there to help rear the next generation. It's irrelevant now. Michael is dead, and 35-year-old Basil is sole emperor. It might sound like a blindingly obvious thing to say, but the fact that Basil had been crowned emperor by Michael 16 months earlier was very significant. I say that because Basil killing Michael III feels an awful lot like when Michael II killed Leo the Armenian. As you no doubt recall, that nasty business set off a civil war which consumed the empire for three years. And part of what fueled Thomas the Slav was the knowledge that Michael of Amorium was no more royal than he was. Basil was from even lowlier stock than Michael, who had been mocked for being well acquainted with farm work. And yet, the Hagia Sophia was full the day that Basil was crowned. Men had acclaimed him and thus sworn loyalty to their new sovereign. As news filtered out that Michael was dead, most likely at Basil's hand, what were men to think? If the rumours were true... Could they overthrow the Macedonian on the grounds that killing your co-emperor was, you know, wrong? The emperor presumably put it about that Michael was unfit to rule and had threatened his life, etc., etc. So it wasn't really about right or wrong, it was about whether there was an alternative candidate and whether anyone would support him. And no one came forward. The government had been run by Theodora and Theoctistus for a decade, then Bardas for another, all members of Michael's family, and one or two key allies of Bardas's had been purged along with the general, so there didn't seem to be anyone standing to object to Basil's coup. 
we should also assume that Basil had gone around pressing the flesh during his years in the palace. Once he was Michael's chamberlain, he would have met all the great and the good. And if they frowned at this peasant upstart, he presumably laughed it off and shook their hands even harder. We have no reports of further purges or uprisings against the new regime. Basil got to the key men and secured their support. And what about key women? The empress, Eudocia Decapolis, was sent back to her family, but the other empress, Eudocia Ingerina, stayed right where she was and continued, as far as we know, to be a happy matriarch of the imperial family. So if she was horrified by her fake husband murdering her real lover, she seems to have kept it quiet. As I mentioned last week, it's impossible to know the truth. So either she got over her discomfort with the situation and became Basil's actual wife from now on, or she continued her already regular marriage, or perhaps she even patted her husband on the shoulder, pleased he'd carried out the plan that she was fully in on. Whichever way things played out, she would bear Basil several more children over the coming years. Just because there was no official opposition, though, doesn't mean that men approved of Basil's actions. Given what happens later, it seems likely that the aristocracy held their noses at this turn of events and bided their time. We can also assume that the clergy were shocked to hear how Basil had become sole emperor. But no one stood up and denounced him. The emperor knew, though, that he needed to wash this stain off and fast. So his first act as sole ruler was to sack Photius as patriarch, reinstall his predecessor Ignatius, and ask the Pope to forgive the recent squabbles and reunite the churches. This was a smart move in theory. Photius had been close to Bardas, and so was a likely candidate to stir up trouble. And by restoring Ignatius, Basil pleased the rigorists in the church, who would naturally be the ones most appalled by an emperor committing murder. The appeal to the Pope also gave Basil the chance to be hailed for bringing peace to the church and have his legitimacy stamped with Rome's approval. In case you've forgotten, two episodes ago I covered the testy falling out between Photius and Pope Nicholas over various issues, including a jurisdictional dispute over the new Bulgarian church. Basil's request for help landed on the desk of the new pope, Hadrian II. Nicholas passed away two months after Michael. Hadrian duly sent delegates to represent him at an ecumenical council, which was held in Constantinople in 869. Great care was taken to demonstrate that the Eastern patriarchs, Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria, were properly represented. This was in part a Byzantine concern to put the Pope in his proper place as one of the five patriarchs, rather than as number one. Uh, but presumably Basil was also concerned to make sure the council had legitimacy and force, 
so his regime could be further supported. The council met for several months and took time to thoroughly condemn iconoclasm as well as anathemize Photius. The papacy seemed to have won an important victory when the Byzantines agreed to repudiate all decisions made by Photius during his time in office. This was a slap in the face to the government of Constantinople and also an administrative headache as the patriarch had been making decisions and appointments for nine years. But Basil wanted the churches reunited, so did Ignatius, and so it was agreed. But the papacy were then taken aback when representatives arrived from Boris, the Khan of Bulgaria. As you may remember, Boris had accepted Latin priests into his country when the Byzantines proved less than helpful with his country's transformation to Christianity. But what Boris was really after was an independent patriarch. He didn't mind if this man was appointed by Rome or Constantinople, but he wanted him to be the independent head of the Bulgarian church. Boris knew that once this man was living next door in Pliska, he would be able to control him. But while his church was directed from another capital, he felt insecure. Despite repeated polite requests, Hadrian refused to give him an archbishop of his own. So his delegates arrived during the council to ask for an answer to the question, whose jurisdiction did the church fall under, Rome's or Constantinople's? The council was packed with Byzantine and Eastern bishops who had no doubt that the correct answer was New Rome. The papal delegates weren't in a strong position to disagree, having just got everything that they'd wanted. And so with this clever manoeuvring, Boris got the answer he was looking for. Basil was pleased to be able to send Greek clergy back to Bulgaria, but he conceded and sent the Bulgars their own independent archbishop. These negotiations take us to the middle of 870. But in those three years, Basil had kept his military busy. Naturally, he was concerned to win some victories to bolster his position, but he didn't chase easy glory. Back in 867, he was receiving distress calls from two western cities, Syracuse and Ragusa. The fleet was given orders to relieve both cities, which were being besieged by the Arabs. Ragusa is modern Dubrovnik, and the small Arab force fled at the first sight of Roman ships. The Byzantine force landed and helped establish a small theme of Dalmatia to protect the area. The main part of the fleet headed for Sicily. If Syracuse fell, then the island was doomed. But like almost every other attempt to reach the island, this one failed with significant losses. Basil was very concerned by the growing threat which Saracen naval power presented. He began investing in a bigger fleet and seeking a military alliance with the Franks to combat the problem. Not only was Sicily about to be engulfed, but Malta was soon captured and Arab raiding parties were creating camps on the Italian mainland. 
One such base was the city of Bari on the southeast coast. This had given the Arabs a secure Adriatic port for the past couple of decades. Basil saw an opportunity to secure his dynasty's position further by proposing that his eldest son Constantine would marry Louis II's daughter. Ironically, though, renewed Byzantine interest in Italy scared the Franks off, and they rebuffed the offer of help and retook Bari themselves. Basil wasn't deterred, though. He would continue to invest in the security of the West. For now, though, he had to return to the Eastern Front, where the absence of his attention had allowed the Paulicians to raid deep into Anatolia. As you'll recall, Bardas's great victory in 863 had dealt the city of Melitene a major blow. But the Paulicians were still active, and with the West calling on Basil's attention, they had plundered all the way to Ephesus. Basil marched out in person in 871 to face down the heretical sect. It's a sign of how confident he was in the loyalty of the army that he was able to do this just four years after killing Michael. The campaign was not as successful as he would have liked. He tried to zero in on the Paulician stronghold of Tefriki by capturing neighbouring forts and setting up a siege. However, he was driven off in some panic and decided to leave the fighting to his son-in-law and domestic of the Scoli, Christopher. The next year, Christopher won a famous victory. The new Paulician leader, known to the Romans as Golden Hand, was on the move in Anatolia again. Christopher's troops shadowed him carefully. One night, the Paulicians made camp at the foot of some hills near Dazimon, the same spot where Theophilus was defeated by the Turkish horse archers. Christopher sent detachments of the Armenia Khan and the theme of Chasianum to spy on them while he blocked the road back to Tefriki. According to the chroniclers, an argument broke out amongst the Byzantine troops about which theme had the braver men. To settle the matter, each group picked 600 of their company to make a dawn raid on the Paulician camp. The rest of the troops would make a huge noise to frighten the sleepy enemy. And, well, we'll see who has real guts. The answer turned out to be... not the Paulicians. When the noise suddenly broke the morning silence and Roman soldiers appeared in their midst... Golden Hand and his army broke and fled. The camp was overcome with panic. Some men reached their horses and rode away. Others leapt onto pack animals as confused donkeys and mules scattered. The rest were cut down or taken prisoner. Those who got away, including Golden Hand himself, ran straight into Christopher and the rest of the army. The Paulician leader was killed and their time as an independent raiding force was over. Basil was very pleased and celebrated a triumph, which he hoped would impress the people of the capital. With the crushing of the Paulicians, the emperor felt he could present himself as a pious Orthodox emperor. You know, thou shalt not kill, aside, 
To underscore this, he announced that he was going to convert Byzantium's Jews to Christianity. Interestingly, the last emperor to attempt this was Leo III, another rough provincial who founded a new dynasty. But while Leo's conversions were superficial ceremonies that were quickly ignored after the fact, it seems that Basil made a more serious effort. Details are sketchy, but it seems he offered prominent Jews tax exemptions and imperial promotion if they would publicly convert. Once that failed to do the trick, though, he resorted to the usual heavy-handed tactic of forced baptism. The policy seems to have remained in effect for the rest of his reign, but was no more successful than previous attempts. It didn't even win him favour with the rigorist party, who felt that forcing people to Christ's door was wrong. With his position more secure, though, Basil's military machine spent the next decade demonstrating its growing power. With the caliphate in decline, Byzantium was beginning to throw its weight around in areas it hadn't been able to for centuries. The enlarged fleet were immediately more successful, defeating the Cretan Arabs in 873 and 74. The next year, they landed troops on Cyprus, temporarily reincorporating the island into the empire. The hope was that they could cut off the supplies which the Cretans received from Syria and Egypt. In 876, the people of Bari appealed to Basil for help. Louis II had died and they were afraid of the Arabs returning. A Byzantine garrison was installed and Basil began making plans to enlarge his forces on the Italian mainland. On the eastern front, the Vasilevs campaigned in person in 878 as his army raided the lands around Melitene. More significantly, though, another detachment captured Lulon, the fort near the Cilician Gates, which held the first beacon in the early warning system. You may remember that the Caliph al-Mamun had taken it in the early 830s during his wars with Theophilus. Having a fort on the other side of the Taurus Mountains was obviously hugely valuable to the Arabs and had helped supply their raids. The following year, Christopher finally captured Tefriki, putting an end to the formal organisation of the Paulicians. Meanwhile, Basil demonstrated his new control over the mountain passes by leading a raid on Adata and Germanicia, the border towns on the Arab side of the frontier. When he returned home, the emperor celebrated his second triumph. In Italy, the Byzantines were able to re-secure Calabria, the toe of Italy, in the face of Arab attacks. The fear was that the Muslim raiders would conquer the area once they'd secured Sicily, which we'll get to in a moment. The fleet won an important victory in the Tyrrhenian Sea, establishing their presence there. And then Christopher's best sub-commander hunted down the Arabs on the mainland, one hill fort at a time. He was able to recover the city of Otranto and force the local Lombard leaders to acknowledge the empire as their protector. 
It wasn't a dominant position, but it put an end to Arab bases in Byzantine territory and established that imperial forces would not abandon Italy. Oh, and the name of that sub-commander was Nicephorus Phocas. Not that one, but that one's grandfather. As impressive as this all sounds, Basil also discovered the limits of Byzantium's current strength. After seven years, Cyprus had to be abandoned again when the caliphate raided the island. The locals begged the Romans to leave so that they could return to their former position of paying tax to both empires. At least that way, neither side would attack them. It would be another century before the island returned fully to Roman control. On the other side of the Mediterranean, Syracuse finally fell to the Arabs in 878. It was a major blow for the empire, who just couldn't project their growing power so far away. The fall of the city sent shockwaves across Italy, where the Pope feared that a fresh onslaught would come his way. And finally, in the east, attempts to take Melitene and Tarsus in the early 880s both failed. At Tarsus, the besieging forces were surprised by a night attack and suffered heavy casualties, while at Melitene, troops from Adata and Germanicaea arrived to attack the Roman camp. Spooked by the growth of Byzantine power, the Arab border towns desperately needed to work together to keep the enemy at bay. The Romans would have to wait for other men to project their power further east, but during his 19 years on the throne, Basil certainly lived up to his muscular reputation. At home, though, he was equally active. You won't be surprised to hear that Basil commissioned buildings and law books to classic imperial tactics to confer legitimacy on a new ruler. Some construction work was forced on him when the Hagia Sophia's western arch collapsed during an earthquake in 869. However, the Macedonian seems to have taken this opportunity to refurbish several other buildings, including the Church of the Holy Apostles. He also began constructing a new church, known locally as the New Church, in the grounds of the palace. It was a beautiful building, apparently, and its cluster of gilded domes could be seen from all over the city and out at sea. Such a wonderful house for God must mean the man who built it is a pious ruler. Right? We'll talk more about the law books next time, as they were not published in full until the reign of Basil's son Leo. However, it's interesting again to note the connection with Leo III, who was the last emperor to release a new law book. His iconoclastic influenced Ecloi. Basil aimed to purify the laws of iconoclast taint and underline his love of justice at the same time. Though we don't need to be totally cynical about his motives, it's entirely possible that as a man of the provinces, Basil knew how the law was perceived by the ordinary citizen and had ideas to improve it. I should also note that both the Ecloi and Basil's new work were selections taken from Justinian's giant corpus of law books, 
no one had the stomach to revise the whole thing again. To help him with this intellectual task, the emperor called upon the smartest man he knew. That, of course, was Photius, the ex-patriarch. Initially, Photius disappeared into exile, but was apparently too valuable to leave on the shelf. He was recalled a short time later and became tutor to Basil's children. A story is also told that Photius, a politician as well as a polymath, offered to write propaganda for the new regime and won Basil's favour that way. One such piece was a fake genealogy showing that Basil actually descended from ancient Armenian royal stock. In fact, Photius was in for an even greater honour when Ignatius passed away in 877. He was reappointed patriarch. This extraordinary succession indicates that the majority of churchmen were not happy with the deal made with the papacy. Doubtless many of them had been appointed by Photius in the first place and were aggrieved to be unseated by the Ecumenical Council of 869. Once Photius was back in office, another council was called for 879 to officially reinstate him. You'd think that the papacy would refuse to cooperate, but the fall of Syracuse had scared them, and they wanted Byzantine naval power on their side. So Pope John VIII offered conciliatory terms. He would accept Photius's return if the patriarch made a formal apology for his past actions and if Bulgaria was returned to Rome's jurisdiction. Both points were nominally accepted and then largely ignored when the council actually met. Photius also went ahead and condemned the Western additions to the Nicene Creed again. The details aren't important for us right now, but what you should know is that although the papal delegates approved of the council at the time, in the long run the Latin church would not. So for the Byzantines, this council replaced the one a decade earlier as the Eighth Ecumenical Council. But eventually, the Church of Rome would officially disagree, maintaining that the previous council was the Eighth, and this was merely a Byzantine council. At the time, each side continued on without rancor in the face of common enemies. But over the centuries, these differences would grow into a full-blown schism. Finally, then, we must return to the issues surrounding Basil's family. He certainly presented them as if they were all happy and biologically linked. Another commission inside the palace was a mosaic showing the imperial household in a suitably religious and respectable light. As we've gone over thoroughly, what the truth was is impossible to determine. We do know that Basil was extremely fond of his eldest son, Constantine. When the boy died in 879, Basil went into a prolonged period of mourning. He featured him posthumously on coins and dedicated a church to his memory. It seems that part of his sadness stemmed from the fact that he got on less well with his second son Leo, 
who now became heir apparent. Many historians follow the assumption that because Leo was actually Michael's son, Basil was always wary of him. Whereas Constantine was probably born to his first wife and was therefore definitely his. However, historian Tobias Norman argues that this theory is based on shaky ground. You see, nowhere does it say who Constantine's mother was. For all we know, he was born to Eudocia Ingerina as well, which would make him Michael's biological son too, if you follow that theory. Or indeed, it would mean that Constantine and Leo were both Basil's sons. Interestingly, the third son, Stephen, seems to have already been in Eudocia's belly when Michael died. When he was born, Basil had him castrated so that he could be dedicated to the church. Yes, castrated. It's the first time I can remember an emperor doing that to his own child, and so adds anecdotal support to the idea that because this was Michael's kid... Who cares? But again, this could simply have been part of a wider strategy to secure the dynasty in power. Though it seems bizarre and cruel to us, this act was viewed as a pious one by the church. And of course, having too many sons can actually be a problem, because they squabble over the throne. Still, when a fourth boy appeared, Alexander unquestionably Basil's child, the boy was not harmed. It can be fun to speculate, but as Tobias Norman says, the stated reasons for Basil and Leo falling out are entirely plausible for a father and son. In fact, they are entirely predictable to our ears. In 882, Leo turned 16 and his parents arranged a marriage for him. His mother chose a relative of hers called Theophano, who was apparently deeply religious. Leo was not impressed at all, but went ahead and married her. Soon afterwards, Eudocia passed away, and tension between father and son flared up in her absence. News reached Basil that Leo had been seen with the daughter of one of his advisers, Zoe Zautzina. No one knew better than Basil the damage that such affairs could do to an emperor's reputation. It was only three years since he'd lost Constantine, and he wasn't going to have his plans spoiled by his second son's hormones. Flying into a fury, Basil called his son into his presence and beat him up. Presumably, Leo answered back, and soon there was blood on the palace floor. The emperor then married Zoe off to someone else. This acrimony is entirely familiar to us from the marriages of Michael III and Constantine VI. No one wants to be forced to marry someone they don't like, but when you know you will soon be emperor in your own right, it must be particularly galling to have your hand forced. A little pop psychology also sees a clash of personalities between man's man Basil and his bookish son. Raised in the palace, educated by Photius, 
and not taken on campaign as Constantine was, Leo would become the first emperor in a long time to never go to war in person. That all makes it sound less likely, then, that Leo attempted to murder his father a year later. The accounts are confused, but Leo was arrested on suspicion of treason and placed under house arrest. Some of his friends were exiled for their part in the supposed coup, and Basil apparently had to be talked out of further punishing his son. Instead, he just left him to sit in his apartments for two years. By 886, however, pressure was building on Basil. It seems he'd been ill and not attending public events, and with Leo absent as well, the court was becoming anxious about the succession. You can imagine their fears given what happened the last time there was a change at the top. That spring, a conspiracy came to light led by one of the commanders of the Tachmata, and apparently with the backing of dozens and dozens of noblemen. If true, the fact that so many men were willing to support a usurpation suggests that Basil never really had washed away his initial sin. Reluctantly, he ordered Leo to be released and restored to his position as heir to the throne. It's fitting that in a life filled with unanswered questions, Basil's death should be equally murky. The official story is that only a month or so after releasing Leo, he was wounded by a stag while out on a hunt and died of his wounds a few days later. Robert Baratheon style. The obvious suspicion is that foul play was involved and that Leo wasn't going to risk being disinherited again. The fact that Zoe's father, Stilianos Zautis, was on the hunt, and would then go on to serve Leo as chief advisor, has raised eyebrows. However it happened, Basil the Macedonian was dead. He was about 54 years old, and had led the empire well, for 19 years. I don't think there's ever been a less likely Byzantine emperor than Basil the Macedonian. At least Justin was a member of the imperial bodyguard and an experienced soldier, even if he too was an illiterate country boy. As far as we know, Basil entered the palace with no experience of government at all, and the fact that he rose so high and stayed on the throne for so long is a testament to his will and ability to adapt. Byzantium's growing prosperity and strength helped, of course. New sailors, buildings and law books all cost money, and the growing population provided the revenue to support these projects. Still, his constructions were praised, his armies were victorious, and he left a capable son on the throne. What more can we ask for? I think the frustration with Basil is just how little we really know. It would have been more fun to paint him as a conniving villain who would have done anything for power. But life is not that simple. We just don't know what he was thinking, 
or who he was related to, or if that mattered. Even if his children were not his, he seems to have raised them as if they were. And so it is his dynasty that will march on for the next 150 years. It's now 886 AD, and it's time for me to ask you for your questions about the 9th century. Leo VI will rule until 912 AD, so you've got a little time to have a think. Remember that I'm looking for questions just about this century we've covered in the narrative, and send them in to thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. Post them on Twitter or Facebook or on the website. And thank you in advance. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 